the primaries for the presidential election in the U.S. Is it brave or is it the Lulu? Well, I mean, the Lulu is a Solulu. Almost 20 years later, I still struggle with where are you from. For somebody who reads a lot of African literature, it was the familiarity of everything. I'm going to be honest, I do not have a lot of empathy for that character. I, I did not like the ending. You are listening to Two Bees in a Pod. I am Bilala. And I am Bilionga. And this is a podcast about immigrant experiences, sharing our perspectives on various topics. Including negotiating cultures, fitting in, staying connected, learning and unlearning, the good, the bad and the ugly. This episode, we're going to be reviewing our Bees Book of the Month for January, which was Behold the Dreamers by Imbolombwe. But before that, we're going to catch up a little, say what we've been up to, discuss some current events. But as usual, we start with our icebreaker. So the question today is, what vibe is 2024 giving so far? So far, I'm still trying to make my way to 2024 because it only dawned on me this evening when I was thinking about the next can in 2027. And I said, oh, that's in four years. (laughs) because <laughs> I was trying to see I, I couldn't figure out the frequency of African Nations Cup I was, and mm. that's when I realized I'm still in in 2023 I think Nigerian Twitter has been they said the energy for this year or the vibe for 2024 is no grief for anybody so don't let oh, anybody <laughs> don't let anybody make a fool of you don't let anybody take advantage of you so I guess maybe that's that's part of the vibe Wait, but I thought AFCON was every two years. Am I? Yes. So my sister was explaining they it used to be every two years and it was even even number years. Mm-hmm. But with a lot of players playing internationally, it was conflicting with World Cup and um Olympic Games. So they switched it to the odd number of years. Then there were a few years where one host was not ready, Cameroon. And then there was COVID. So they've had, I think 2021 got pushed to 2022. Mm-hmm. And then, no, I can't remember. There was yeah, one last year. There was one no. last year in Cameroon. Yes, it was, was last, it year. last year. Yes. I made a lot of TikTok videos about it. I should know. The Let one last, that was last year. You're right, it was. So I, I think 2022 got pushed to 2024 and they've decided to, instead of having 20, so they're skipping 25 and then they're going to do 27. Okay. So where is that one going to be? Let me start. It's going to be in Kenya, which Ooh. I think is just going to be hilarious because in all of the noise and chaos from the current, this current competition in Cote d'Ivoire, like the West Africans have been loud. West Africans and North Africa, it's, it's been like their thing with the exception of like Repo- uh, Democratic Republic of Congo and Angola and South Africa and Namibia. But uh, West Africans have been the loudest. And East Africans have a completely different temperament. So I'm curious to see what that is going to be like. But I think I want I would like to go. Me too. I'm going to start planning. No, see, so Cameroon actually hosted in 2022. In the beginning of the year, they were supposed to host in 2021, but it got pushed. So then it was 2022, around this time. Yeah. It wasn't last year. <laughs> it wasn't, girl. See, the way time is yes. flying. Somebody, I was listening to another podcast and they were saying like from 2019 to now, 
does not feel like five years. It surely don't. It, it don't. It's, like it's, something it's, has it's happened that, with the time. It's that damn COVID. Yeah. Anyway. So for me, what's the vibe of 2024? It's giving kind of unexpected, but not necessarily in a bad way. Just things are not going to go as you expect and you better get ready to pivot. To pivot. Yeah, that, that's the vibe that it's giving me so far. So I'm ready to pivot bro, with the punches and all of the things that they say that you should do. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I'm I'm with everything that is happening there's also like i have to force myself to have hope and mm. just be hopeful in every situation because it's there's just so much it just feels like there's so much bad happening back to back to back and then for those of us who live in cold climates with winter we are fighting <laughs> the lack of sun yeah. every single day there days there've been a few days when i think about how i'm feeling i'm like wait i haven't taken my vitamin d this morning it's it's a real thing i did not think it was like the lack of sun could be real but there's just i can notice like a clear uptick in just when it's cloudy versus when there's like just the ray of just a glimmer of sun which i guess that's what hope does right hope is like a ray of waiting for a ray of sunshine in what feels like a cloudy day yeah and just the because i just got back from cameroon last week and just driving around houston you see the dead trees, like the sky is cloud. I mean, it affects you. Yeah, I was telling my sister, like, this is so depressing. You know, when all the plants have, have died or whatever it is that they do, they some of them come back. But we had that freeze while I was oh, okay. in Cameroon. And when I came back, like a lot of my plants had died. So it was it was a truly depressing scene to come back to. <laughs> you just reminded him about that cold. At our lowest, we had maybe negative eight, but it felt like negative 28 Fahrenheit. And a lot of the schools around Chicago got canceled, except mine, my daughter's school, which just completely threw me off because like the people who run her school have a reputation for going on strike and not liking to work. So I don't understand why all of a sudden everybody was closing school. And these people had me out here in negative 28 degree weather. But like, I don't so understand. Why don't what? they do Zoom classes like during times like this? To add insult to injury, there was a morning it was like snowing, slushing, and they hadn't salted the roads or cleaned it. And so like I'm in a parents group chat and everybody's like, are we going to, is it safe? Can we go to school today? And everybody's going on and on. They were like, nope, school is open. And then they sent an email like 2.30 saying, oh, school is going to close at three o'clock today. It was almost 3.20. Like they get out at 3.20. These 20 minutes when I settled down. And then for those of us who have after school activities, this was like the day school was supposed to get out 4.20. If you already had them, why are you taking them out early? Because it wasn't snowing. It was not raining. Like everything was fine. Y'all could have kept them. All right. No, I hope it doesn't get that cold again. I know, same here. Okay, well, before we get into our discussion on our book of the month for January, we wanted to just talk a little bit at, about current events, some of them more serious than others, obviously. The first thing that I wanted to talk about was at the end of December last year, um, South Africa went to the International Court of Justice, which is different from the International Criminal Court. 
right? The ICJ is the highest court in the UN, but it doesn't prosecute individuals. That's what the ICC does. So South Africa went to ICJ basically saying that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinian people. And the court is not going to decide this case, you know, anytime soon. It apparently is going to take years. But this past weekend, when was it? Was it on Friday or Saturday? They basically made their initial ruling, which was that Israel has to take measures to prevent genocide, which I'm seeing mixed reviews, right? Mixed reactions from people. First, people are disappointed because the court did not call for a ceasefire. And then other people are saying that it's still a win because they are acknowledging that South Africa, you know, they didn't throw out the case. They're going to pursue the case and they are, you know, basically demanding Israel obviously does not have to, you know, follow what they say, but they're saying, hey, this is what, these are the things you have to do to prevent genocide because you are a part of this, you know, the UN. But I don't know, it seems contradictory to me because how are you going to tell somebody you have to take these steps to prevent genocide, but you're not telling them to stop bombing the people? Like for me, it seems contradictory. So I kind of get the people who are disappointed because it doesn't make sense to me. Why wouldn't you demand a ceasefire? My question is, if if they did ask for a ceasefire, (laughs) would Israel comply and like if israel like if they don't comply what is what is the next step so that's the thing right israel i mean i think was it last year or when russia was you know bombing ukraine or you know they, they advancing their, <laughs> yeah what or when when they began or when they were doing their <laughs> military you know campaign in ukraine the court asked them to stop and of course they did not they didn't comply so yeah, they're not, you know, they can't do anything. They can't really take any action to force Israel to do it, but it's more symbolic, right? And that's what people are saying that South Africa was kind of playing a long game because if they bring this case and the court makes a ruling and Israel does not comply and the US and Israel allies don't comply, then why should any other country comply with not just matters concerning war, but anything else, you know? whether it is money that they have borrowed, any other ruling that any UN body makes against a member state, why should they comply if Israel and the US are not going to comply? So it's kind of forcing them into this position where in the future, other countries can point to it and say, like, who are you Who are you to talk, especially the US who likes to be the world police? I mean, fair enough. I guess you have it on... I think for me, the big thing is having it there and like with South Africa laying their case the way they did and putting things where Israel was not necessarily denying like, oh, we did not do this, but trying to deflect and have everybody. So like, even if they're not going to comply, but like admitting that they need to stop and these are the things that you're doing wrong, which is why it's like, try not to kill people or kill civilians and i don't know it just feels like there's a war every day because following that you have niger mali and burkina faso who are all led by military regimes that overthrew their leaders they want to leave the ECOWAS, which is the economic community of west african states and it just feels like everybody in the world is like you know what this global world we're doing 
I don't want anymore. And everybody's just like, okay, peace out, deuces. But I, I saw a thing today where somebody said, please, you know, this is not what you want. Like, my dear, you know, Senegalian or Niger or Burkina Bay, this is not what you want. But I'm like, these people were not elected. They were not chosen by anybody. They they seize power and they're doing whatever because they disagree with the sanctions being meted out to them by their peers, which someone, I read somewhere that the bylaws of ECOWAS don't allow for them to just get up and go. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, but it, it just feels more and more like maybe 10 years ago, there was structure. It felt like there was structure in the world and this is how things went. And now it's just chaos from left, right, front, center. And so if it gets heavy, I think, it's important for us to remind ourselves every now now and again, it's essential to unplug and take some time away from everything because you don't always feel, you could feel like, oh, I'm not there. I'm not in the battlefield, but the mental and emotional um, load also takes a toll on you. And the feeling that there's not really a lot that you can do, right? Like with the genocide that's happening in Palestine, it's like, okay, People started out trying to give money. You're going to give money to go to aid. The aid is not getting to the people, okay? The one thing that I've seen that people are doing, which seems to be effective, is to buy eSIMs and donate because then that way the people in Gaza have access, you know, to the internet. They can make calls. They can, you know, reach the outside world. But, yeah, it's overwhelming to... You're in, you know part of the world that is relatively peaceful you have your own first world problems and you feel guilty when you see all of this that's happening and you feel helpless right but i wanted to say about you know what's going on with mali burkina faso people were celebrating those coups because they saw it as rejecting french colonial authority which i agree with but the answer is not military-led regime. Like, we know that. I think every or most Africans know that from experience that the military is not the friend of the people. It might seem that way. You know, yes, you know, they are, you know, putting out this anti-colonial message against France, and we hate France. But the answer, and to your point, they were not elected. And they don't seem to be taking any steps to (laughs) have a democratic election. The military in... I would speak for Cameroon. The military in Cameroon is there to protect the president first before, I would say even before the country. So there, yeah, when whenever you have these coup d'etats in African countries, to me, it's just like two friends, siblings got into a fight and they cannot agree. And one person has decided that I'm going to be the the, the head, head person in charge. It's just two, two sides of the same coin. The military mm-hmm. and dictators or or whatever which coming back to Cameroon I saw that yesterday last night somebody went shooting in Boya because they said people were not respecting ghost town and as somebody put on Twitter like you get mad at the people like ghost town was like a rebellion against the government mm-hmm. but then you get mad at the people and then you come and kill these people for not respecting the ghost town that is it's just like who are you a friend of or who is your enemy here like why is it the civilians are bearing the brunt of of this conflict like 
a few years ago, kids were hiding. They couldn't go to school in their uniforms. They were doing all these things to make it seem like they were not going to school. People have more or less deserted the area and then you're killing them for what? And the civilians, they are really stuck between a rock and a hard place because you have the ambas, right, the rebels, or those claiming to be them on one side, saying, why are you not respecting ghost town, terrorizing them, shooting up the place, burning people's places of business? And on the other hand, the FCO, at least in FACO, last year, apparently started this campaign at the behest of the government where they were going around and businesses that were shut down on Monday for Ghost Town, as has been the practice for the last, what, six years, six. they boarded up their, their business. Seven. The government would, yeah, the government was boarding up the businesses and then you had to go and pay a fine for them to release your business which to me makes no sense because first of all, I'm a private business. If I want to only open on one day of the week, I, I can do that. You as the government, you cannot force me to open my business on Monday if I don't want to. And then on top of that, you know that I'm under threat from this other extremist group. Like that, that's what I'm saying. Like the government in Cameroon, like they are, they are the enemies of the people. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, I, it's not so much even enemies of the people, but the government in Cameroon, again, because of how this, the government is set up, there's only one person they answer to. Everybody is trying to curry favor because you could be the SDO today and somebody has a dream and the next day they will rappeler à d'autres fonctions. They will call you to other duties, which is how they fire government of, uh, officials in Cameroon. You know, there's a decree that is released and then they announce it on TV or on the radio mm-hmm. with new appointments. And there are people who are ministers for, I've in my lifetime, there are people who have been ministers for three months, six months, and then they, they're fired. What, what, how much can you get done in six months? Like six months, you're still trying to understand the lay of the land, set up your own systems, and then they fire you and then they, you know, bring somebody else and then it just goes. But nobody works for the benefit of the people. Very few people work for the benefit of the people. Everything is eye service to make sure that the boss at the top sees like you're working and keeps you there. Yep. And then you're chopping money in the time that you have because to your point, you don't know when that time will come to an end. Anyway, from one chaotic government to the next, the primaries for the presidential election in the U.S. are going on right now. And (laughs) Donald Trump is the leading candidate for the Republicans. A lot of them have dropped out, you know, and of course they're kissing his ass now. I think the people who are still left in the race are Nikki Haley. Is there anybody else else but her? I think now it's just her because Vivek dropped out. Ron DeSantis dropped out. Yeah. So I think, yeah, they're they're the two main, unless there's somebody else smaller that we don't know about, but I think they're the two front runners, Donald Trump and Nikki Haley, which Nikki girl, those misogynists will never vote for you like that. I mean, she has her own issues. I, I don't like her, you know, as a candidate, you know, but I, it's very brave of her to think that the, the Republicans will vote for her. Is it brave or is it the Lulu? Well, I mean, the Lulu is a Solulu. So, Plota, you know. <laughs> is, is, no, Nimrata, I don't know. It's just, it, it feels like a clown show. But I 
I will never take the clown show for granted anymore because everybody, these are people who know, they were saying one thing, right? It's kind of like Lindsey Graham, where Lindsey Graham on the campaign trail in 2016 said all the things that this man was going to do and why you should not vote for him. But as soon as they voted for him, Lindsey was ready to risk it all. Lindsey Graham personally called in Georgia to see if they could find votes in 2020. So I, I don't understand what happens in like what they're thinking because Nikki Haley worked in, in the last administration. So mm-hmm. how do you distance yourself? How are you trying to claim that you're so different from this person when you worked for them? I mean, I I cannot stomach the debates. I just watch, you know, like kind of summaries online afterwards. Like I cannot sit through those debates. Like I will jump out of my second floor window if I have to watch. So I, I don't know exactly the points that she's making, but I've heard her say some wild shit. And I'm like, girl. <laughs> Especially when you consider that both her parents, or was it one? I don't want to say something wrong. At least one of her parents thought thoughts. I use the word thought so much. Thought as in to teach. Mm. <laughs> thought at an HBCU. What? And yes. Yes. What? Yes. At an HBCU in South Carolina. And so it's like, come on, girl. Come on. Like, girl, you we know you know. So, I mean, she... Mm-hmm. It seems like she's trying to align herself more with the Caucasian, you know. Of course. I mean, Nikki, Nimrata, Nikki. Yeah, but it's it's a fiasco because how can the leading candidate in your party, he's currently in courts, whether it's defamation, fraud, he has so many cases going on. He currently has 91 counts of whatever, all the things. He just <laughs> lost the one in New York with E. Jean Carroll, where he has to pay her eighty-something million dollars. And they said his upcoming case in New York again, where they're accusing him of inflating his net worth. Like for him to get loans, he was lying about mm-hmm. his work. So they said it's like a catch-22 because on in the other case, he has to show that he has the money that he said that he has. But if he's trying to cheat E. Jean Carroll, then he's going. So if he says he doesn't have money, then he has, you know, validated what they are pursuing for in New York. But if he says that he does have money and shows the money, then he has to give it to her. And so you know what's so insane is that this second, this second lawsuit is because she won the first one against him. And then he went and was talking shit about her after that. Like, you will not sit quiet. So that woman has already, like, sued you and won. And then you went and you were talking shit about... And I love that for her. She sued his ass again for defamation. And she has won again. Like, that man is his own worst enemy. Because he cannot... Listen, I just tried to talk and it was French about to come out, which means that all my English is finished for today. Because (laughs) it's... It just feels like a clown show. There's a lot of clown shows in the world right now. And yeah, which brings me to a thing that I saw. Like, I don't know if you haven't been paying attention. There have been a lot of layoffs in the media lately. Where Mm -hmm. in like legacy media in the US, Sports Illustrated, Fired Everybody. I think NPR, LA Times, Business Insider. 
somebody else, a lot of them are laying off like 10%, at least 10% of their staff. And with it being an election year, Twitter, I'm not calling it that name, is no longer a credible source of information. We're going to be fighting for our lives here to find out what is true and what is not true. Because oftentimes there are things that I see on the internet and I'm just like, I would look at people's responses. I'm like, but nobody is like, where is this information from? Nobody's even asking the questions because I I brought this up because I saw something today where they said there was a poll where they said 71% of people agree that the government needs to do more to provide assistance to the poor versus like 20 something percent when they called it welfare. Like language matters. Mm, it's the uh-huh. same thing with it's like welfare versus assistance to the poor uh-huh. affordable care act versus obamacare uh-huh. and it's like we need people to have access to the news what is right what is you know true not even right what is objective and true because we take for granted i think sometimes for us <laughs> younger people <laughs> geriatric millennials right where we have access to the internet we can look for credible sources there are people who did not grow up with the internet they might just believe everything on the internet or not believe everything on the internet and they're waiting for the paper but if your local paper is firing everybody then who is doing the work of like going out and doing this investigative journalism and bringing out these stories that's true yeah Although a lot of the media is also biased, but they do they do serve an important you know function in that sense. But yeah, the big and I'll say by and large the big ones, right? I I tell people that local elections matter, and the same way your local paper also matters because people clown local news because they'll show you that the fire department went to rescue cats. <laughs> I mean, but case, that's relevant for the people in that community. You you have to start somewhere. The things like, you know, these moms against critical race theory and all these other niche groups, they did not start as a big group. They started in somebody's town and in somebody's community and grew to where they are today, wreaking havoc everywhere they go. And so it's important to also know what's happening in, in your local environment. What new taxes are they trying to add? What new laws or things that would affect your everyday life that can make or break it i live in a place where i'm very salty they are taking bricks for construction and they've tried to tell me like if it's snowing how would they do i really don't that's not really my problem i don't understand why last summer we were trying to be outside and construction was such a nightmare there was traffic everywhere and the traffic they took they took a break for winter they'll be back in the spring I mean, I can empathize with them. Now. With me? With them. <laughs> now that we are in the house, we are not driving. Isn't this the time to be, you know, chop chop? When the sun is out and we want to go, you know, hit the streets. Every day last summer, I'm just like, if you're inviting me to the city and I cannot get there on the train, I'm not coming. It's not I worth it. That. I hear it. But maybe there's some engineering reason why, you know, the cold temperatures do not let them. <laughs> I mean, logically, like when we had snow a few weeks ago, like, and then they had to ice the roads and this was construction on the highway. So now there's salt 
on the road, which is not necessarily a great thing. I don't know how that's going to interact with the asphalt and whatever materials they're using. It's probably best to wait. Yeah. But it just it just feels like now when we don't really need to be driving, there's no construction. In the summer, when the sun is out, we want our cheeks out, you know, on somebody's boat on the lake. It would take me three hours for a 30-minute drive. I mean, at least you guys have trains, you know, somewhat, you know, functioning public transit in Houston is a different story. If you're not just if you're not going to downtown from a very, you know, very limited area, then public transit is not an option. But you brought up the moms against critical race theory, and it reminded me of this scandal. So there's this group, Moms for Liberty. And they are one of these groups that you're describing where they are trying to get books taken out of libraries, taken out of schools, particularly books that depict same-sex couples, right? One of the leaders of this group, Bridget Zeigler, she and her husband were having these orgies. It was revealed and she was in a same-sex relationship with another woman. And this was Florida, right? This, this yes. is Florida, of course. Of course. And it's so funny because it's like every time, every time, like these people who are so staunchly homophobic, it's yes. never surprising. Like they, I'm like, girl, why do you hate yourself? Always, always, always. There was a Republican congressman back in like 2006 who had voted against every single thing that was LGBT friendly. and. Turns out he was messing around with his staffers, all of the male persuasion. And there are so many of them like that. I don't even know the one specifically that you're talking about because there are so many that have come out. There was the other one where it was in the airport and he was soliciting, you know, people in the airport bathroom. That's the one. That's the one I'm talking about. I cannot remember his name, but that's the one. (laughs) On, On More Hypocrites, there was this new story out of Tennessee in Collierville, Tennessee, where one of these moms against CRT who had gone on the school board to take out books from the library was got shoplifting. And not just any kind of shoplifting, like you're using the self-checkout and not scanning properly. And I found out they said Target would let you steal. They wanted to steal up onto the amount that it's a felony, then they called the feds. Damn. What was she stealing? So she was scanning things, but she wasn't scanning them. So she would be like pretending that she was scanning and was not. But it was amounts like around in the hundreds of dollars. So it wasn't like a mistake. Like this was intentional. Mm-hmm. So she had to resign from, from the school board. But I'm like, if if but I think it's also one of those things that people just think that they're above the law or like it doesn't apply to them. Because if you're working that hard to bring people down and like you don't, I would say, watch your back, watch your back, watch your front. You cannot afford to falter. But I guess some people feel like they're above the law and these things, it's, you know, it doesn't affect them. It affects others and they don't care. Well, now she's going to deal with the feds. They're all hypocrites. They're party of family values. They're, they're all hypocrites. Anyway, let's talk about the other party. So, of course, Joe Biden is the incumbent and he's he's running again. His challengers are Marianne Williamson, which a lot of people like her, but she has said some she she's I think she's an anti-vaxxer and she's one of these alternative medicine kind of people. So she has some harmful 
some harmful ideas. So I'm not a fan. And then the other person who is trying to challenge him and the Democratic Party is blocking him left and right is Dean Phillips. I don't know a lot about him. He seems to be more progressive than Joe Biden. He's certainly younger. He's, you know, at least 20 years younger than Joe Biden. But yeah, the Democrats, they're giving him a hard time. He's, I think it's in Wisconsin where they're in the Supreme Court. He's fighting them because they won't put him on the ballot for the primaries in April. So they're really... They're they're going out of their way to to block him. And listen, Joe, Kamala, y'all are done. Like you're cooked. I I don't know why they're trying to run again. Like you're not going to win. And for the people who are trying to guilt trip those of us who have said that, you know, we're not voting for this man, telling us that we're voting for Trump. No, we're not voting for Trump, but we're not voting for Joe Biden. Like, hang it up, sir. Let other people come and save your party disagree because I'm not well versed in in American politics. I'm not going to say that I'm well versed in American politics, but it is a two party system. And so in places like the third, I don't know. I cannot think of any time in recent memory where a third party candidate has won. And I don't think that third party candidates, like if there is no clear path to victory or just anything, a, a third party candidate is like you're not, was it? It's like be for real, right? You're not serious. You're not, you're taking votes that would have gone to either or. So it's either a vote for this person or a vote for that. And we've seen in recent years where they're like really, really tight margins where people are winning or losing by 10 votes. I'm I'm not big on any third party candidates again, because like I said, in history, I'm into data. If there's no precedent where a third party candidate has won and like, Marianne Williamson is a French candidate. I say French because, like you said, and she's not hugely popular. And a lot of the things that I've read about her is like her French theories and Mm -hmm. some of the, I can't call it science, the things that she shares. She's also like a a flat earther. She's she's one of those weird people. Yes. But there's some there's some value to a party saying that we trust this person and the work that they're doing to be the leader because I don't think that people was it. While there's also something to said about career politicians, like why do you believe that you're the only person who can do the work for 50 years? But there's also something to said about like having leadership pipeline, building up the pipeline and the next generation of leaders who can get the job done. I don't believe in like, oh, this person is too old because it's like, okay, who are the other options? What is what is there? And and like I tell people, I always use her because that's somebody I think about a lot. Like there are people who would, I've not ran, well, I'm not even eligible to run for anybody's office, but people, young people who get into politics, like they see that something needs to be done and they decide to be the change they want to see. In Illinois, we have Lauren Underwood, who went into Congress at early 30s with a background in healthcare. She was a nurse and she runs in a district that used to be like a Republican stronghold. And because she she's a congresswoman, she's had to run every two years since she got in office in 2018. So she's constantly fighting for survival. But at the same time, she's constantly working and co-authoring and sponsoring bills. And I think that those are like we should encourage more of that, like people getting in there, like 
Because when Barack Obama went to run for office as a first-time senator in 2006, I mean, I was one of the doubting Thomases, like, but he did it. And so if everybody's pointing fingers and saying this person is too old and they have the confidence of their party members, I'm not going to age them, but I'm always more of the opinion, like, let's focus again, because there are three branches of government. And so sometimes if you have a president and they don't have people in Congress who can get those bills passed, then we are sitting and it's like that Spider-Man picture. You know the Spider-Man one? Where there's like mm-hmm. the three. And they're pointing at each other. <laughs> they're pointing at each other and nothing is getting done. Like Joe Biden or not, like he's able to pass bills. And as much as I blame him for my traffic and construction woes, but it's because of the bills that are getting passed where if you have, where was it? In Barack Obama's last term when he lost the House and the Senate, English. And like when, what's his name? Antonin Scalia died. And for eight months, because he they didn't have control in either chamber, they blocked his nomination for attorney general. And that's how we ended it in some of this mess that we are in today. So the long and short of this is I do disagree with you on like Joe Biden is too old to run and I'm like he's the candidate I will trust. For me, he's done good, great job on most things. He's faulted on others that he could be better on. But the the other side of the coin is We are looking at somebody who is lawless, who is going to rule by executive order like they did the last time. And it's just, if the first go around was bad, I don't want to know what the second time is going to be because this is somebody who has expressly said he wants to be a dictator and admires admires all the dictators in the land. And so only God knows what, because I, I read a thing today about they're already drafting legislation that they can push without approval from either House of Congress. So Joe Biden is too old. There, there is an age where it's too old to be a politician. Look like, look at Mitch McConnell. The man's brain is glitching, literally, like on live TV. I, I, I think Trump's brain has been glitching. <laughs> He called Nikki Haley, Nancy Pelosi. He's <laughs> but she, uh, she uh, even she even used it the other day. Apart from Joe Biden's age, the, the statement you made about per- career politicians, I don't trust the Democratic Party because if you look through the decades, you can see them becoming more and more to the right. There are videos you can pull up of George Bush Sr. where he's talking about immigration policy. And he's saying things that today we would consider extreme left, like Joe Biden would not even make those statements. The Democratic Party is becoming more and more right wing. As as the Republicans are becoming more extreme, the Democrats are following behind them. And that is why, yeah, a third party candidate will not win. Like the people like Claudia de la Cruz and Cornel West, those are the two people who seem... You know, but they will not win. But the Democratic Party cannot continue holding people hostage by saying we are the lesser of two evils. That's not good enough. Execute on what the people want instead of saying 
if you don't vote for me, you're going to get this guy. Okay, we'll get this guy. The country will burn down and then we'll start over because you cannot be holding people hostage with that threat. A third party candidate will not win. But if they get enough votes where it becomes clear to the Democratic Party that you are losing voters because you're not doing what people want, then they will fix up. Then they will start getting because you people cannot say, okay, if Trump gets into office, he's going to do all of these things by executive order and then turn around and say Joe Biden cannot do all of these things because he doesn't have the the people in Congress. You're kind of saying two different things. Can the president do whatever he wants or can he not? And if he can, why has Joe Biden not done all of the things? I will use the example of Al Franken that Al Franken... When when I look at Republicans, I see people who are laser focused on evil, right? They are laser focused <laughs> on, on the things that they want and they don't get distracted. Mm-hmm. For 10 years, the Federalist Society and the Koch brothers and what's the other one that was buying judges? I can't remember his name. They were laser focused on the things that they wanted. Citizens United, abortion, and all these other things. And they played the long game tea party or whatever. And now they're reaping the the fruit of their labor. They never distract. Like Obama wore a tan suit. And oh my God, Trump has scandal upon scandal. Right now he's in court for all these things and they are undeterred. Where when it comes to the, the Democratic Party, Al Franken was accused of harassment and his colleagues forced him to resign. Not to say that harassment is not wrong and it's only this small thing, but I'm just saying that a a, a Republican senator who did the same thing is a non-event of what well, Mad Geitz. Mad Geitz was in the news for hanging out uh, with yeah. and all the things On that, that age. Was. Yeah. And it was just like, okay, it's a day that ends in day, moving on. Where in the Democratic Party, you have people like, oh, I mean, I sometimes I question myself and I and ask myself, I'm too idealistic because I think that things have to be a certain way. But it doesn't matter. Like if your resignation is the reason that they are not going to be able to ban this thing that matters to them, you're going to sit here, you know, look at how much theatrics it took to get. What's that one's name? George Santos. <laughs> like, look at how much. Theatrics, it took. And I feel like he did, he crossed somebody somewhere and that's when they decided that, okay, we cannot sell shame and buy disgrace. Like campaign fraud, like it was clear. He took the money and was shopping and doing this, but it wasn't even enough to get him out. So it's like, they're laser focused on the things that, that matter to them, not that matter to the country. The things that matter to them are important to pass and they don't get distracted in the way that on the left, then there's idealism. There are people who want to be pragmatic and others that want to be idealist. And it is what it is. The world as we know it today has gotten increasingly polar. It feels like every election in almost every country, there's always a, a fight between a somewhat centrist person and an extreme white right wing person. Like in Brazil, when they had, what's his, Bolsonaro, who was just like mm-hmm. right-wing, where even though the current president, before he left, people were not feeling him. When they tasted whatever Bolsonaro was handing out, it took Lula back, like, let's manage this. It just feels like there's so much extremism everywhere. 
I don't know. I don't think there's enough. There's not enough leftist extremism, though. Like the Democrats are center right people. They are not left. These are not leftist people in any way. All of them are chopping APAC money. First of all, let's start there. And it's like they are beholden to corporate overlords. They, these are not leftist people. Nobody in that Congress is leftist, a true leftist. Like they're. That's what I'm saying. Like it's extreme. There's extremism to the right. They are not matching the energy on the left. They are there's not. not a, there's there's not there. There there are people who want to be extremists on the left. But by and large, the left is not it's not an extreme left, it's a center left. That's where that's where they're going wrong and they're gonna learn. I'm sorry, but th- they will learn. And the two-party system needs to go. The electoral college needs to get it fucked. Like I don't understand. That's a holdover from when you know people are trying to protect slave owners. Like, why do y'all still have that? So their need, I feel like it's it has to get worse. And of course, I'm speaking from a place of privilege. It has to get worse before it will get better because the Democrat they will learn the hard way. They, we are they, all they, going to, we as a collective are all going to learn the hard yeah. way. Yeah. That that's that's what it's gonna be. Like it, it's gonna get worse before it gets better if it does get better. Because the way it's going I would just want us to remember that part of the learning the hard way is also how a lot of people died during COVID, this learning the hard way when they were playing games with PPE and trying to give PPE to people who were on the good side and hiding it from states where, you know, they are not speaking glowingly. So we're all going to learn. What do you mean? During COVID, the Mm -hmm. Trump administration was playing games with like PPE protection. New York wanted PPE, but they were not on good terms with the governor. And so Jared... What's Ivan Castle's last name? He was in charge of handling that response. And he was like, he wanted to give it to the people that were his buddies, which is why the Maryland governor at the time went out and made his own deal to get PPA directly from Korea because his wife was Korean and had contacts. Same way they told him to just announce that he was airborne and he would not do it and was saying people should drink, what was it, chloroquine bleach? <laughs> Like they knew, they knew what it was, but they were purposefully misinforming. And that's how we lost, you know, people in the hundreds of thousands. Because I think I remember during COVID when they were bringing numbers and when we got to maybe like 72,000. And I would always, my reference for a lot of numbers during COVID was like Reliance Stadium sits 72,000 people. That's how mm-hmm. many people died in like the first couple of months. And so... When when I look at elections, I don't see it because, yes, people might think there's like what, a lot of the times when Trump is campaigning, it's like my support, even as president, there there was an attitude of because you didn't vote for me. I'm only a president for the people that voted for me. Mm. We, are, we are all going to suffer. I'll use an example of Nigeria had elections last year that were marred by a lot of violence and tribalism. I've in in the last couple of years, I've seen the naira go from what four hundred naira to a dollar to fifteen hundred naira to a dollar today. And as somebody said, all of you people who were doing tribalism, your naira doesn't have a different exchange rate than mine. So, as far as concerns the U.S., right? Uh, we need to move on to our book of the month, but I don't want to end on like a downer. But I'm gonna say this while we are trying to improve the government, whichever strategy, you know, we're taking, 
the focus, when I say it's going to get bad before it gets better, for us, the little people, we, we have to invest in our communities, right? We have to understand that that's where our support will come from, like our our community. And I'm seeing it more and more like people were talking before we started recording about living on a commune <laughs> with like your friends and relatives. But there are people who are legit doing that. And even for people who it's not realistic, like in their immediate neighborhood, people are investing in those community bonds where if shit goes down or we have another lockdown, you know, a la 2020, you, you're not isolated. You have somebody that you can call and say, Hey, I need this. Do you have this? I need it. So that's for us while we're, you know, fighting the government and, you know, shouting and protesting and doing all of these things, we have to invest in our community because that's, what's going to save us. Like they're not, these people are not, they're not going to save us. I yeah. Be active, be, be active in your communities, stay abreast of what is happening because like i said the local things are the things that will hit you most be mm-hmm. it your your mayor your police they determine the taxes that you pay your safety where the funds in your community go we were talking the other day about just like neighborhood safety and having kids being able to walk from one house to the other that's part of like knowing your neighbors so when they see your kid walking they can pay attention to and you know recognize your kid yeah Exactly. Yeah. Vote to your point. Like we talk a lot about the presidential election, but local elections impact you in many ways. They can impact you more than than the presidential. On a lighter note, I wanted to talk about the rap girly beef. I don't know if you've been following. (laughs) So Megan Thee Stallion, our Houston hottie, our Houston baddie, the baddest of the baddies. She released a, a diss track you know, called His, and in it, she, there's a bar, first of all, she dissed Drake also on that song, which I love to see, I hate Drake, which six, seven years ago, like, I would be shocked that myself in the future is making this statement, I used to be in love with that man, but he's a misogynist, and also a creep, anyway, she, she had a bar about, they're worried about Megan, but they should be worried about Megan's law, something like that. And Megan's law is basically a law relating to registered sex offenders, which she did not call anybody's name. But the queen of rap, the queen of rap, aka Onika, aka Nicki Minaj, who is married to a registered sex offender, she heard this and she went, Nikki's spiraling. I mean, I saw snippets from her Instagram live and Barb's, Barb's get your queen. She is spiraling and she released a response. I haven't listened to the nonsense because I've heard people talking about it and it's mad disrespectful. Like they said it was, was they said it was just her tweets. (laughs) Yeah. That's what people are saying that basically all of the shit she was saying in her tweets and on the live, she basically put it in the song which is, I think it's called Bigfoot. The family of the girl who Megan's law is named after I said it was disrespectful and Megan took it off. And I think she said SOR, which is still sex offenders registers or registry. But I'm just like, since when did we start possessing laws? Like, oh, it was named so you cannot say that. Like, I guess the people, the family of the Roe v. Wade 
they can also tell us not to use that because it was named after their family member. Like I found it very odd. Yeah, that um, is that odd. You come and say you can. Her name is literally Megan. Like, who are you to say that? Yeah. What? And there and, was nothing disrespectful about it. She was not clowning the law. I, if anything, people now are more aware of the law. You should be. And happy. that's what somebody said, but she she took it out. Before we go to our book, I feel like we we we've talked about this offline, and then we missed it in everything about Cameroon and our our serial rapist who's either roaming oh, free or has left the country at this time. We don't know, but there is allegedly allegedly there's a serial rapist and abuser by the name of Hervé Bobda who has been terrorizing the citizens of Douala and Yaoundé and everywhere, really. It started out as people sharing their abuse stories that involved him either physically abusing people in public, like slapping or slapping and then like coercing where he would try to talk to you. He walks around with at least three armed people. I don't know if it's security or military police, a.k.a. gendarme, but he works around with people and they would like, he would try to talk to you. And even if you said, try to say no, they would essentially force you into his car and he would pull out the gun to threaten you. And mm. he did that to both men and women. And the more people have shared, the more stories have come out and where it seems like there might even be a pedophile ring where they take girls and boys from Douala to different towns or people lure, you know, teens who have no sense like baby said on our parenting episode their brains this part mm-hmm. of their skull is still empty and so they lure them with promises of things or even on instagram they send messages trying to invite them to parties where you either get taken to his house where he will lock you up hit you and assault you or they take you out of town they've talked about a some parties they call them picking money and then in french they call them partous which is orgies that they have in Boya. And they've named some people and they've brought pictures of people from, from those parties. And Natalie Kwa of Samuel Etofis Infemi from a few years ago has been implicated again. Her, I think, allegedly, Biscuit de May, aka Coco Emilia. So Cameron influencers. I find it funny when they say Cameron influencers because I really don't know what they do. I mean, I just know them as people on the internet. They're socialites. They're- I get that. I think that's a more, that's a better mm-hmm. name. They're socialites. And so they've all been named in this story, but it seems like he has protection at the highest levels of power because there's also tales of him might be blackmailing people. And so there's been agitation and they have in Cameroon, one of the means of transportation is motorcycles and they call them Benskin. And so these motorcycle drivers, aka Benskiners, have been circling his house. But what is interesting is in the videos and pictures, you see that his house has, there's like armed armed officers in the periphery. And it's like, it's not, it's not, we are not sure who they're supposed to be protecting the criminal, the alleged criminal, or the people looking for said criminal. So we're waiting to see what happens to him. I don't want to That's say what insane. I hope happens. No, what I'm is insane so. is the fact that he he was pulling out this gun in public or that he slapped people in public. They said he would go to one rooftop in Douala, Maison Ash. And so like he has slapped people are sharing stories of getting slapped at Maison Ash. And you did not think to ban him from frequenting your establishment. 
But then last week when the heat was on and people started talking about it on social media, then they issued a statement saying he was no longer welcome at Maison Ash. But he has there people sharing stories of him being slapped there. So that did not bother you guys? Like Cameroon is not a real place because where are the military and the police when you need them? All they know how to do is harass drivers, harass civilians. And like, this is they're your job. Him. They are protecting him. Anyway, they're, pro- they're protecting him. I pray he meets mob justice because that's what he needs. If, you know, the law is not going to do their job, they're mob justice. All right. So our book of the month for January was Behold the Dreamers by Imbolombwe. And we had both already read this book, but we reread it. And like I was telling you before we got on the air, I I had forgotten a lot of things that happened in that book. So I'm glad I, I reread the whole thing. But the discussion points that we had got from, where did you get this? It's from like a book club reading guide. I think so. Yes. Yeah. That we wanted to talk about. So the first discussion point was the concept of home. So what does home mean for the central characters and how is it shaped by cultural and economic factors? When I read how Jinde and his wife, Neni, when they talked about Cameroon, right, particularly when they were telling their employers, the Edwards, about Cameroon, it sounded really familiar because they would say all of the things that they liked, but then at the same time, they would be like, no, there's no opportunity there. Like, I, I, there's nothing for me there. America is this great place. You have this kind of two-sided view that I found really familiar that you'll hear from a lot of Cameroonian immigrants and probably immigrants from other countries where they have this nostalgia. They love their country for so many reasons, but they still go on to say, you know, it's not for me. It is, you know, this there is hopeless for so many reasons. So I found that to be kind of a familiar rhetoric. I think it's it's like the question I keep last year I said I needed to figure out the answer to where are you from mm. because almost 20 years later I still struggle with where are you from like nobody needs to know my life history but it's it's like what is home I I think my default is always I'm from Cameroon and so it's usually like I'm originally from Cameroon and it's like, does everybody need to know that? Because also, what are the intentions of a person asking me, where are you from? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like them, I can relate to. There's a feeling of Cameroon will always be home. And even after having lived here for most of my, more, well, most all of my adult life, there's still a feeling of other. Because if mm-hmm. I didn't feel othered, maybe I would say Houston is home or somewhere else but i always default to where i'm originally from so yeah it could be it could be tricky i agree with you right like even if i stay in america for the next however many years till i die if somebody asks where are you from like cameroon will always be the answer unless to your point i'm just not trying to engage in conversation with them i would say houston i mean they say home is where the heart is so my heart is in bamenda amba sticking it for me but did you ever live there? I was born in boarding school. I was born in Bamenda, actually. Mm. So I lived there as a kid, but no, it's it's I, I only went to school in Bamenda. I don't want to say only because I mean that was nine months out of the year. 
But there is a feeling I get in Bamenda that I cannot describe. I need people to feel it. And I feel <laughs> the feeling I can describe. Think about when you get to Limbe, right? And we're talking about the welcome to Limbe sign and you see the water in the backdrop. So like when you get to Bamenda from Dwala and Yaoundé, you like the entrance, the city is on a hill. And so as you're like, once you're up station, you can see the entire city and it's all the emotions as you're going down. It's just like, look at this beautiful place. And it was so coming from Douala, Bamenda was very organized. There's not a grid, but you can see clear cut definitions of where things are. And there's like landmarks, like a Presbyterian church, the cathedral. They're just like these landmarks. And yeah, I haven't been in almost 10 years and I miss it. The air is also different in Babenda. It's fresh. It's not, they, they don't have humidity like we have yes. in, the, in the Southwest. It's fresh. <laughs> it's fresh when there's no hamatan, please. The next discussion point, the novel reveals an extensive dialogue about race. What stereotypes does the novel expose? Which of the characters perpetrate those racial stereotypes and what seems to be the source of these? I didn't really get a lot of racial, you know, for me, it was more about culture. And class, yeah. Which yeah. Culture, yeah. For me, it was about culture and class and, and less about race because the Edwards obviously are white, right? They're a white family and the Jungas are black. They're Cameroonian. But the Jungas don't really interact with other black people. I mean, other than other Africans, they don't really interact with black Americans. So I, I didn't really get... Oh um, yeah, I don't I don't recall seeing too much about race because it's not like your point. I'm like, yeah, it was very much like immigrants, New York. There are other immigrants from different countries, but there's no and that's not to say that there's no ra- racism, but if you look at it from the lens of an immigrant, especially when you come from a country where a majority of the people look like you, you might not always get racism. <laughs> Because you you don't yeah. always see yourself through that lens. And so you might not, somebody would do something that could really be overtly racist, but you would not see that way because you don't have the burdens yeah. and baggage and you don't, you don't mm-hmm. tend to see those things. And so if we consider the author's background, maybe that played, that played into some of that. And there was one part where Nenny, which is Jinde's wife, I don't know, don't remember who she was talking to, but she made a statement about Black American men and having multiple baby mamas. So she kind of, you know, played into this stereotype, which we've talked about on the podcast before, which I found interesting that, you know, which again was familiar. Yes, which, I mean, being an immigrant, we know where those sort of depictions come from, pop culture, what you see in TVs, mo- TV shows, movies, music videos back then. And it's interesting because I, I don't think I paid attention in my initial read to the fact that there wasn't necessarily any interaction with the main, the protagonist. And like outside of the the Edwards, they didn't have much engagement with regular Americans. Exactly. Yeah. So like their friends are other African immigrants, right? Like Jinde's cousin, Winston. And then Nini has her, I think they're like two or three, like other immigrant women. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. They don't really interact with 
other Americans. At towards the end of the book, she joins a church where you know she starts you know a relationship with one of the pastors. But other than that, there's there's not much. So in one of the most shocking scenes in the book, Nanny extorts money from Cindy Edwards despite her previous promise to keep Cindy's secrets. How does this scene extend into a dialogue around morality? Were you surprised by Nanny's actions? Um, hmm. As somebody who likes to shout that their morals are fluid, in, in this situation, well, we can go back. So Cindy Edwards' secret was she was abusing alcohol and pain pills and she would pass out. And it's also funny, like, again, language and how language de- 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 directs our perception of things. Because... In, in this situation, there are certain, you know, drugs that people abuse and people will say, oh, they're, the language that they use is like, you're a crackhead versus, mm. oh, he, he does coke. You know, like it's people just like, oh yeah, he does coke versus, oh, look at that crackhead over there. The language is like the language almost influences your perception because she she's she's abusing alcohol she's abusing pills and passing out but it's almost like a care in the way that it is spoken about and so i don't i don't know i i haven't been in any shoes where i feel like my back was against the wall and i don't know what i'm going to do so i i wouldn't judge her for doing what she felt like she had to do in that situation but i hope that if if you're somebody of very <laughs> a hard line you have very hard line morals and things that don't you're like unwavering in your mm-hmm. morals that's where should somebody do this or if you're in that situation you remember the time that you judge somebody else for for doing the same thing so i wasn't really mad at nanny when she did that because cindy edwards got jindy fired because her husband, Clark, had been cheating on her with, you know, he had been using an escort escort service. And Cindy had given Jindy a book to write down all of Clark's, you know, goings and comings. And he had left out that part, obviously, because he didn't want to betray his boss. boss. And Cindy forced Clark to fire him. So it was out of that desperation that Nanny resorted to this blackmailing, essentially. And I wasn't mad at her for that because... In this whole story, like the Clark family, they keep dragging their employees into their drama, right? Like, why are you asking the chauffeur to keep track of your husband? That's not his job. If you yeah. think your husband is cheating on you, you know, confront him in hire a different a PI. way. Or hire a PI. Yeah. Like, so they were just involving, like, again, even when in the Hamptons, when Nanny saw her, you know, passed out from the pills, it's like... Why, why she had to help, you know, get her cleaned up. And then another time when she had a fight with her husband, like Nini was there, like comforting her. It's like, keep your staff out of your drama. So I was already annoyed with the family. So I, I was like, you know what, Nini, do what you got to do because they they fired your husband unfairly. So yeah, was it, was it wrong? Was it kind of low? Sure. But, you know, she had it coming. Yeah, yeah I mean... All I'm hearing is there there was a lack of boundaries between, between the Edwards and their staff. Um, mm-hmm. the, there were no boundaries, which is true. Like, it doesn't make sense to ask him to spy because it's almost like he was caught between a, a rock and a hard place and he was never going to win. 
Because if he had given that information, he would have still gotten fired and he did not give the information and he got fired either way. So he was never going to win. And it's like, why are you bringing him into y'all's marital issues? Exactly. Okay. And then the last point from the reading guide was discuss the parenting styles that the Edwards and the Jungas use. How are they similar? How do they differ? And how does their parenting impact their children's worldviews, choices, and identities? That's deep. The Edwards had two boys. Yes. There, there was the one that went to India. Mm-hmm. Who, he was I kind think... of on this self-realization journey where he was rejecting, you know, America and well, he's mm. yeah, he's representative of this kind of like white liberals that have the privilege of being able to say, I'm going to remove myself from the system, and all of you people are sheep in the system while not realizing that you have the privilege to be able to do that. Yeah, the parenting style, I didn't really see a huge difference with the smaller, with the younger one, which was mighty. But Cindy, when Vince said that he was going to India, like she really annoyed me with how dramatic she was getting. Like this is a grown man. He's in his 20s. Like, why are you so upset that he's going off on his own journey? And she made a huge deal out of it that I just didn't understand. It's still her child. I mean, I still feel like a child. Every time I look at my age and I look in the mirror, please, I'm still a child. So, <laughs> Yeah, but at the same time, it's like, why, why are you getting that upset? Like, why does he have to be in the same city as you? Like, let him go and actualize and, you know, go on his own journey. I think she wanted to be a helicopter mom. Just her mm-hmm. demands, her demands were bigger than her desire to be a helicopter parent. Yeah, and she seemed like she made her whole life about her family. That's why I mean, obviously, being cheated on is devastating for anybody, right? But the way that she spiraled and eventually, you know, died from a drug yeah. induced. Mm-hmm. She died in her sleep. She, she choked. choked no, she, she choked yeah. on vomit. I think that it's it's sort of like what I will not know what they describe New York a lot of these socialites to be right like the women get involved in philanthropic causes and they go to lunch they take care of kids take care use that term loosely they're mm-hmm. somewhat involved in their kids' lives but they're not working and and those who don't you know find a way to save some money in the event of like a cheating spouse or a divorce, one is like, they don't want to divorce because then you lose your social standing. Or two, if the person who hurts you and the reason why you're getting a divorce does not care about you, then you might end up with nothing. And so the family ends up being their identity and they don't know how to shake it when shit hits the fan. Yeah, she just seemed to, like, to your point, like, she had no identity outside of her family and this kind of, you know, her social status with her friends, which seemed to be linked to her family status. So, yeah, she, I'm going to be honest, I did not have a lot of empathy for that character. The one thing I want to say, this book was published in 2016. What do you think an alternate ending would be if it was written today? Because I remember having a conversation in a book club at the time where somebody said they did not think it was realistic that they would go back to Cameroon. But considering where it is today, and especially considering that they went back to the Southwest region, do you think they would go back today? 
I mean, they were going back to Limbe, right, which we're talking about in the context of the crisis is in terms of the Anglophone regions, it's the least impacted. So, I mean, they could because you could very much go and start a life. I mean, unemployment is high. You know, there's certainly a lack of business opportunities, but I mean, I could see it. I still think it's unrealistic, but. I think in 2016, yes, because at a certain point in time, I wanted to move back to Cameroon. Now, taking into consideration my own privilege, yes, there's, mm. you know, I, there were securities that I had moving to Cameroon. Mm-hmm. However, with the way that things are today, what I like, Limbe by and large is not as bad as places like Bamenda or Boya, mm-hmm. but it's still not the Limbe that you had in 2016 or 2015, say when she was writing. So now if I read this ending today, I would be like, "Mm, I don't know about that. True. And keep in mind that Jinde is an uneducated man, right? He didn't finish. I don't know if he finished secondary school. He didn't finish high school. So, I mean, the opportunities for an uneducated person, I would say you have more chance of earning a stable income in the U.S. versus in Cameroon. You know, I maybe today they would have immigrated to Canada. True. They, yeah. Because, I mean, going back to Cameroon was not the only option, right? Sure. But yeah. I'm just saying, they would, point, have, they would have done Scrum. He's uneducated. And Nene, I could see Nenny doing Scrum. Yeah. But, okay. So there are several themes that show up in the book that we have talked about on the podcast, right? First of all, the idea of America as this land of opportunity. You can see it with Jende when he comes and then when Nene's waiting for him to bring her, she's kind of dreaming of this this opportunity. And when she gets here, it's like the best thing ever. Like even though she misses her home, like she thinks America is this, you know, awesome place. Another thing, immigration stress, right? Like just that weight on the shoulders of throughout the book. Jende has an ongoing immigration case, which is an asylum, you know, case that he makes on the advice of his lawyer, which that's one thing I found unrealistic because even the worst, the dumbest immigration lawyer, I feel like mm. would have come up with a better asylum story. No. Really? I, I have read an asylum story one day that I asked that, was your lawyer like, what was he thinking? Like, was this story supposed to be like believable by anybody? It was, it was, it was pretty bad. I mean, okay, this is Cameroon before the mm-hmm. Anglophone crisis, okay. right? So, but I feel like even then, we had had a president since 1982. So you could very much make the case that this is a hostile political environment. Like, there are so many other stories that you could have made instead of, oh, my girlfriend's dad wants to kill me. Like, come on. It was for me that part was unrealistic. I'm just I don't put like I've seen a few cases where I was just like, what were you and your lawyer thinking? So is this lawyer and this lawyer now? I said you get what you pay for. I mean, yeah. So, but definitely, like you can tell for me that was a realistic apart from the unrealistic asylum case, the stress of the pending immigration case and how it really impacts them. I thought that was very well described and it, it was realistic for me yeah yeah immigrate the immigration one stands out and 
you know, like we've talked about the perception of African-Americans from African immigrants. And so, you know, like Nene's perception is also something. When Jende's father died, right, a couple of things kind of hit for me. First of all, he made a statement saying like, oh, like, Papa, why did you die before I could see you one more time? which I think is a sentiment that a lot of immigrants have when their people, you know, pass away. And it's like, oh, I thought I had time, right? There's this idea that, oh, I thought I would be able to see you. You kind of, there's that regret that my person has passed away and I thought I would be able to see them again. But then he can't even go home for the funeral because he has this pending immigration case. He can't just leave and come back to the U.S. And that's something that we've talked about on the show before. So I thought she did a good job. The author did a good job of, you know, kind of portraying that. Yeah. Yeah. This immigration slash bad governance that pushes immigration. I, I was telling somebody recently that we underestimate how much it takes from, from us. You know, parents sending their children abroad, hoping they will get a better life at 16, 17. Children trying to make it in these countries. Parents, the parents don't even know where this country sometimes is just, they have the name of the city where you are and they're trying to figure out where where the country is and, you know, doing everything you can to survive and, you know, trying to help the family. You're trying to survive, but there's also sometimes people who like, because you're abroad, Black tax hits early mm. because everybody, you know, pitched in to send you abroad. So this auntie's sick, you have to help. And then, you lose a parent or you lose somebody and you can't even grow. It just, it compounds, you know, the things and it takes, it takes toll on even your physical health. Like, Cause all that stress you're carrying with you all the time. Yeah. And black tax is also, we've talked about this on the podcast before, and it is well portrayed in the book where <clears throat> Jinde's family members are calling him to send money because this person is sick or they need to do this on their house. And then, of course, when his dad dies, he has to shell out a lot of money for the funeral. Hopefully Another the person. House, the house was real, not like the house we talked about. Oh, Lord. In... <laughs> <laughs> what episode was that? I can't even remember. I don't remember was what the... episode. Was it the money episode? I don't remember. Where people where the... Yeah, it was the money episode where the guy was sending money home to his money. mom to build the house. And the house was, was not. They were catfishing him with pictures of the, the progress pics. <laughs> Another person who pays black tax is Winston, which is Jende's cousin, right? He's an attorney and obviously is more well-to-do than Jende. He's the person who buys Jende his ticket to come to the U.S. He pays for his immigration fees, the lawyer fees, and he does a lot to help Jende. And I think Winston is also supporting family members back home. They mentioned like he has mm-hmm. siblings in university and stuff like that. So it's not highlighted as much, but Winston is also paying a lot of black tax. And then the bit where Nene and Jende get into the fights and that turns physical, I think that also ties into like the gender dynamic, mm-hmm. uh, with especially with, you know, immigrants versus like here versus in Cameron. I think a lot of that is portrayed in that in that encounter between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their relationship is very much, even though you see Nene trying to, you know, rebel, their relationship is very much, it's, you know, this kind of stereotypical patriarchal <clears throat> where Jinde is making the decisions and she doesn't have a say 
right? Like he tells her to drop out of school when she's pregnant to kind of, you know, get more rest. And it seems to be something like, oh, you can look at it like, oh, he's concerned for her health, but he's overriding her own agency, right? Saying like, oh, I am, you know, your husband and I'm the father of this child and I'm telling you to not go to school this semester because you need to rest. It's like, okay, I get your concern, but she's, he, he, he's not asking for her input. And there are many cases like that in the book where he's basically telling her like, this is what we're going to do. And even when she extorts that money from Cindy, she comes and gives it to him, which girl, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. But all in all, it's a great book. I would always recommend it. It was nice revisiting the characters, getting to know them again with with new eyes. Because like I said, it's if a lot of life has happened since 2016. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think that there will be some things might be different post today if it, if we're written today. Like anything else, right? Because it was definitely okay for the time that it was or it was it was it connected with the time that it was written in. All right. So what did you love about the book? Two things. It's going to be one sentence. I hope it covers two things. But I think for somebody who reads a lot of African literature, it it was the familiarity of everything. And the familiarity of it being written by a Cameroonian, talking about things that I could relate to, references that I was familiar with, and also being an immigrant here and sharing some of like the immigrant stresses and that experience also. It was very much like, hey, I, I see a lot of myself in this. Agreed. What I loved also is that the author does a good job of like weaving aspects of Cameroonian culture. Like she'll describe dishes like ekwang and kwakuko and puff puff. So she did a good job of weaving that part of the culture into the book, as well as language. You know, they drop some pigeon words here and there, backwary words here and there, and then customs, right? Like describing the funeral rites for Jindy's father. I also loved how... Something realistic, a realistic picture, even though I don't like how it ended for her. We talked about how Nini, you know, this they were in an abusive relationship, essentially. They get into this fight where Jinde physically assaults her and a neighbor comes to the door and asks, is everything okay? And they say, yes, everything is fine. Nobody calls the cops. And then for Nini specifically, I think it really portrays realistically how the men in her life have held her back and really derailed her future, which is a is unfortunately a reality for a lot of women. They talk about how her father refused to send her to school after she got pregnant the first time and they lost the baby. Her father is, you know, basically a raging misogynist and tells her like she's basically not going to amount to anything in the future. So and then she gets into this relationship with Jende from when they were teenagers. She gets pregnant the first time that child passes away. She gets pregnant again. And it kind of just, she she dropped out of school and never went back because of the pregnancies, right? And then she comes to the U.S. She's trying to pursue this pharmacy degree. And you can tell at different points in the story that she's really ambitious, but yeah. she's always overruled by him. So I think that part was a realistic portrayal of how she was she was held back by, you know, obviously she did not choose her father, but this relationship with Jane Day, I think if she had somehow been able to leave him, which wasn't she wasn't able to do because of the children, I think she would have made 
a way for herself in America. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think and, so. I mean, women, especially, we talked about it in that episode about how women tend to adapt better in the U.S. than, mm-hmm. than men. So, And she had skills because she was doing, like, home nursing, right? Home, home health. Home health. Yeah, so she could have, again, she could have made a way for herself. And I don't know why they had that other baby, which... It's like you're struggling with immigration issues, you're counting pennies, and then you go and have another baby, which I'm like, and they never really talk about it in the the book never really tells us whether it was planned or unplanned. They just kind of start telling us about her symptoms and then she's, you know, she's pregnant, she has the baby. I'm like, okay, was this planned? No, because in Cameroon they say picking up a bona, which means you just have the child. Whatever happens after will happen that's the attitude of a lot of people yeah but i i empathize with nini and then an alternate ending for me was would be like he goes home and she stays she stays and figures it out with her kids and i think that she would have figured it out she would have i think she should have stayed it would have made for a good sequel of her figuring out and hopefully winning in the end yeah because she's gonna go back to limbe and do what Actually, I've I've written the sequel. She'll go back to Limbe and she's going to play DV Lottery, but she won't put Jende's name on it. So she'll win and bring her children back. And one of her kids is already a citizen, so she doesn't even need to. Yeah. So, okay. So what did you not love about the book? I did not like the ending as mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Because it's like, behold the dreamer. She had all these dreams and knowing... Knowing Cameroon and looking at it with my eyes today is just like, it just feels bleak. Like I would want a more, I like to look at my books as escapists, like I'm escaping from real life. And maybe that going back is just in my mind, I'm imagining all the harsh realities that await the characters. So mm-hmm. I wish an alternate ending gave them reprieve because it just felt like they struggled through most of the book. And I wish that they would have gotten an ending where I felt like they were getting, they won. They at least got some kind of a win. I mean, it's written as if they're getting a win because they're going home with all of this money that they have saved and been gifted and extorted, which it's not a lot of money. It's 10 million francs. They're paying black tax. People will see them with the money and not that like Jinde, I'm not, he's not somebody I'll put my money on that. He's going Mm -hmm. to grow the money. Mm -hmm. Um, So it just feels, for me, it was, I I did not like the ending. I, and I wish Nini had more agency, like, make decisions for herself or, like, her character was able yeah. to make choices for herself because she wouldn't have gone back. She wouldn't. And there are times where you see her, like, trying to resort to desperate measures, like, where she suggests divorcing Jinde and then marrying her friend's cousin to get papers she even considers giving Leomi up for adoption to her TA, who is, you know, a gay man who has told her that he's him and his partner are looking to adopt a child. Like she even like that's how desperate she was to find a solution. So, yeah, I agree with you. I wish that and you can see her rebelling right throughout the book, but she never really gets her way, which uh, I wanted the story to end differently for her. One thing that I like just kind of weirdly annoyed me is that Jinde uses these similes that 
there's no explanation, right? He uses a lot of similes that have to do with African geography. He will describe somebody's smile as wide as the Rift Valley. There's another one. He said something about Victoria Falls. And I'm like, okay, why why does he know this much about African geography? Like you've never, you haven't told us, is this an interest that he had during the time when he was in school? Like it's, he uses these similes that it's just out of nowhere. We have no idea why he knows this much about African geography. So for me, that was, and I made a note of it the first time I read the book. And the second time it still annoyed me because I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. Like why does he use these similes specifically when we we don't have any background on why he knows this much about African geography? Look at like, you know, some of these people that just use big words and things where I had a class where we used to read the the dictionary and just be using words just... Like yeah. why are you reading the why are you reading the <laughs> dictionary? Like he was just using words, and sometimes when he would talk, like I'll actually have to go look it up. Like what did you just say? Because it it didn't like he wouldn't even use them in the right context. But I guess because most of us are not using such those mm-hmm. big words, it will be hard to tell. So I don't think that it stood out to me particularly. It stood out to me particularly because it was it was specifically African geography, like. It wasn't, you know, just right. If to your point, if it was like random world geography, then I would say, okay, he probably picked up an encyclopedia or something. But no, it was very specific. And I'm like, why does he know these things when he's only gone so far in education? And also, you haven't told us that he had any kind of particular interest. So that bothered me for some reason. And then we've already talked about the unrealistic immigration scenarios. In one part, he talks about a friend whose sister filed for him, which <clears throat> that is the yes. most unrealistic thing in this book. Sibling filing. It's its not something that is not allowed. It's allowed, but the wait time is decades long. Like you cannot file for your sibling to bring them here as a citizen. And it, it doesn't happen. So I don't know why she included that in the book. Like, I'm like, girl, be for real. Like you could have thought about something else. <laughs> No, but see, let me put it this way, right? So there are different, like family immigration has different categories. In in 2010, I think this was 2A. 2A was like, let me remember. I think it was unmarried children. I think they start from like 21. It's like unmarried children. It was It was a category that had a backlog for mm-hmm. permanent residents to file for their children over 21. What's funny? Over 18. It was a small window. In 20, 2010, they opened it and let permanent residents file for their children over 18. Usually it, was, it had like five, six years backlog and they processed a lot of them in that window. So maybe. So, I mean, I feel like she, if that was the case, it was one of those freak scenarios. She could have given that explanation, but that was just so unrealistic for me. I'm but like, no. about it, immigration laws change a lot. True. Immigration changes a lot, so. I guess I'll give her a pass. Okay, but all in all, it's a good book. If you haven't read it, I definitely recommend reading it. Our February book of the month is called Chain Gang All-Stars and is by Nana Kwame Ajebrenya. And it is a dystopia novel which is set in a prison system in which prisoners can choose to compete in this kind of reality TV slash sporting event where 
if you win, you get your freedom. And if you lose, you die. Oh, let me just say the book after this one has to be romance because what is this? I love it. I love dystopian novels and I dystopian don't. movies, anything dystopian. No. I love it. I, I think, hey, don't judge. If, don't judge. You might enjoy it. It's it's supposed to be a commentary on or a critique on the American, you know, prison industrial complex, which again is set in this fictional setting, which I think I think will be interesting. It has really good reviews. I'm excited. I'm gonna try, but this is my well, I guess I'm learning my lesson that the next time you send me a book, I'm I'm <laughs> not just going to go on blind trust and be like, oh sure. Because yeah, I, I I think you'll enjoy it. Be open-minded. I'm open-minded. The last dystopian book I read, I was like, what is this? And have you read Exit West? Mm. Yeah, it, it was, I couldn't, I tried, I stopped. <laughs> anyway, pick up your copy of Chain Gang All-Stars. Mine is coming, as you know, I'm a physical book girly. So mine is coming in a couple of days. I'm excited to dive in. <laughs> I'm a library girly. So download the Libby app and the Overdrive app and check your local <laughs> library. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Check support your local libraries, please. I've read that even if you don't go to the library, if you sign up for a library card, like the city uses that, like the number of people who have library cards, they look at that to determine, you know, the funding that they should give to local libraries. So please, even if you don't think you'll be going regularly, just sign up for a library card. And if you're in New York and you want to sign up for a New York public library card and give me the information, I won't I won't say no. What's special about New York Public Library? I just think they have more books. And I, I mean mm. like and my friend and I trade library card information. So I'm currently I have access to a lot of libraries, including libraries in different countries. I love that. I love that for you. So yeah, right. if, you have a, if you have New York Public Library, please whisper, come and talk to me. Thank you. <laughs> All right. If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe. You know, we love that you're listening, but follow us, subscribe, and give us a five-star rating and review us wherever you're listening. You can also engage with us on Instagram at 2 And until next time, Tifmani Fam Nasoso Melsin. Which translates to a thief's farm is only, what is medicine? A thief's farm is full of, I, I would, potions. Yeah, a, a thief's farm is full of magic potions and booby traps. I would, yes. Right? Yes. And, and basically it's saying that because the thief knows what they do, on their farm, the they have protected it. Yeah, they have laid it out with magical, you know, traps and protection so that other people don't steal from them. So it kind of reminds me of, you know, people who are like very jealous in romantic relationships. It's never surprising to find out that they are actually cheating, right? Because like they know what they're doing. So that's why they're so suspicious of everybody else. Like if you're doing something shady, it makes you think that everybody else is like you and like you're suspicious of everybody else. That's kind of my interpretation. I don't know. Mm, makes sense. I mean, fair enough. It's it's like I I tell people that if it's on the internet, I can't find it, which makes me very prudent with where I put my information on the internet. <laughs>
Oh, see, there you go. Okay, I like that. 